medical advice. Please talk with your health care provider if you have any questions or concerns. Support for WERU comes from our listeners, individual and family members, business members, and program underwriters. Thank you for your support. Info online at WERU.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host, Andre Bella, is up next. Welcome to Healthy Options. I'm Andre Bella, your host for this morning. We are going to be talking uh, with Jenny Phillips about her documentary film, The Dama Brothers. Um, Usually this is a live call-in show. We don't have the option of call-in today, but we do encourage you to email your questions to us at info at weru.org, and we will um, include those questions this morning. Um, Jenny Phillips is a cultural anthropologist, filmmaker, writer, and psychotherapist. For the past 20 years, Phillips has provided mental health services in a medical center in Concord, Massachusetts. Her specialties include crisis intervention, family therapy, behavioral medicine, hypnotherapy, and mindfulness training. Over the past 15 years, she's worked with men in state and county prisons, teaching emotional literacy skills and mindfulness meditation. In 2008, Phillips produced and directed a documentary film, The Dama Brothers. The film had a national theatrical release in 2008 and a national broadcast on public television in 2010. The Dama Brothers tells the story of a group of prisoners inside a maximum security prison in Alabama participating in a 10-day intensive meditation program based on the 2,600-year-old teachings of the Buddha. Um, By portraying this intimate and personal journey among prisoners, many of them serving life sentences and others life without parole, the film serves as a vehicle to raise public awareness about the potential of personal transformation among prisoners. The Dahmer Brothers has been shown in over 30 film festivals, including 12 international festivals, and had television broadcasts in Europe and the Middle East. During its theatrical release, it received positive reviews from major newspapers. Intriguing, fierce irony and dark hope, powerful honesty and clarity, says the Los Angeles Times. Mind-boggling, says the San Francisco Chronicle. This provocative film candidly documents the mixed emotions and institutional conflicts aroused by the introduction of a Buddhist practice in a predominantly Christian prison, says the New York Times. While working on the film, Phillips collected over 200 letters from the Alabama prisoners documenting their lives in prison and their quest for inner peace. These collected letters were published in 2008 in a book called Letters from the Dhamma Brothers. The publication of the book led to an interview with Oprah Winfrey on Oprah's Soul Series broadcast on Oprah's Oprah and Friends Radio and a webcast on Oprah.com. As part of this hour-long program, through a phone hookup with the prison, Oprah actually interviewed two of the Dama brothers. And in 2008, letters from the Dama brothers received an award from the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. Jenny Phillips, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're with us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, I, I'd like to start out this morning just telling our listeners 
um, exactly what Vipassana is. There, you did film this 10-day intensive meditation experience at this prison. And what what is it based on? What is Vipassana? Vipassana in the language of the Buddha means to see things as they are in the language uh, Pali, P-A-L-I. Uh, and Vipassana is an intensive uh, meditation practice that involves 100 hours of meditation over the course of 10 days. So that means 10 hours a day of meditation, practicing very specific skills. And all of this practice today is directly based on Buddha's teachings 2,600 years ago. Buddha never wrote anything down. Gautama, the Buddha, uh, never wrote any of these things down, but his followers did uh, shortly after his death. And it, it was protected. This practice was protected and closely followed originally in India, and then it died out in India but it was maintained in Burma over all those years. And in the 1960s, a man named Mr. S.N. Goenka, who was a Burmese Indian businessman who developed terrible headaches and began to practice Vipassana as a way to escape the pain of his headaches and, and, find, uh, peace in, and find peace inside of himself. And he later brought that practice to India and established it there in the 1960s. So, so how do we get all the way from uh, 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 the teachings of Buddha and India to Donaldson Prison in Alabama? Well, the practice of Vipassana is held in centers around the world. And anybody in the world can apply to go and do a 10-day sitting, and it's completely free to anybody who goes there, and they teach you how to practice Vipassana. But there's been a long-standing interest in the Vipassana organization internationally and also in the North American Vipassana organization um, in bringing the practice into prison. And in many ways, it seemed like a natural place for the practice to be located. And I can talk a little bit more about that later on because I think it's very interesting how neatly it fits into the prison context um, and it, it's never been held before it went to Donaldson in a prison in the United States it's been held in a minimum security county jail outside of Seattle, Washington for 10 years it, it was um, held there for the men and the women but it's never been in a prison before and I actually visited Donaldson prison in 1999 and interviewed the um, prisoners there who were meditating, I was very interested in the fact that I had heard that a large number of prisoners were meditating in this prison, and they were teaching each other how to meditate, following a book called Houses of Healing. So I went down there in 1999 and became very impressed by the men that I interviewed, and I realized that what they were really asking for was something very deep and intense that they hadn't normally been able to find in the walls of prison where brief mindfulness meditation is, is practiced but then you're going back into the normal you know clanging and banging and mm -hmm. uh, the emotions of everyday prison life so it wasn't a very protected place within which to practice meditation although i think meditation can help you even if it means closing your eyes and breathing for a few minutes so it was extremely helpful to them but they were asking for something more, and it was at that very time that I visited Donaldson in 1999 that I myself heard about Vipassana 
through the film, the documentary film, Doing Time, Doing Vipassana. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> that looks like what they're asking for. And I contacted uh, in Shelburne Falls, the Vipassana Center in Western Massachusetts, and we began a long journey of several years to bring the practice to Donaldson Prison, working very closely with the Alabama Correctional System. And in January 2002, we brought the first program into the prison. So so what was, you talk about this a little bit in your book, Letters from the Dhamma Brothers, but what was it like for you personally going down that road to Donaldson the very first time? Yes, what was that uh, long country road? What did it feel like? Mm. Um, it's outside of Birmingham. Uh, it's uh, located in the in the woods, deep in the woods. You go down a long driveway. To, first of all, you have to find it uh, in the countryside, and it's not easy to find through all the twisting, turning roads. And when you get to the driveway, it's a long driveway down a rather steep slope, and all of a sudden you see the prison glinting in the sunshine in front of you with all the razor barbed wire around it. Um, so as I say, it's deep in the woods. The the myth, which may or may not be true, is that there's many, many very dangerous snakes in the woods and that nobody has ever escaped from Donaldson. But I'm not sure if that's true or not. What, what prison, kind of prisoners go to Donaldson? Uh, the worst of the worst is the way it's described. And that's not the way I would describe these men at all. But they're the prisoners. It's called a level six security. It's the highest level security in the correctional system. And it's where people go for a long stay. And they're often prisoners who have not been able to be comfortably housed anywhere else because basically they were troublemakers or they seemed to be beyond help and hope. So they were sent to Donaldson, and it holds approximately 1,500 prisoners. The other thing that's, uh, the prison is surrounded on three sides by a river, a very beautiful river. When I, when I first saw it one day when I was down there, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. It looks like a smaller version of the Mississippi River, and it kind of curls around the prison on three sides. And it's called the Black Warrior River, and it's named after an Indian chief that really resisted um, the incursions of white settlers. I think it was in the 1700s, and his name was Tuscaloosa, and he was referred to as the Black Warrior. And that's what the, the river is named after, this Indian chief. Mm-hmm. Interesting that that's where they should place the prison. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the other thing I wondered uh, also when I was reading reading your book and watching the documentary is what were some of the issues that you face considering that uh, Alabama is in the is in the middle of the Bible Belt I mean was there resistance by correction officials or by the state or local people about having this program there well I um, really honor the fact that the correctional system did do this and it hasn't happened anywhere else in the United States in a prison like this. And, uh, of course, there was some resistance, and it is the Bible Belt, but I'm not so sure that um, it wasn't the right place for it to come because, it, as I say, it did happen. And I know that in my own home state of Massachusetts, this could never have happened. Why do you say that? Because I think they're rule-bound and there's a rigidity here, and I find things to be much more open in the South. Um, of course, there's racism and mm-hmm. there's um, 
bias against prisoners wherever you go and fear of prisoners and stereotyping and all those kinds of things everywhere. But I think we're more rule-bound here. And um, I, I just found it... Uh, people wear their emotions and their attitudes more on their sleeves and they're, you, you, can, you can read them and see them and talk with them about things, I think, more easily, certainly than Massachusetts. Now, there are other parts of the country that are exploring bringing a Vipassana program inside. Mm-hmm. But as I say, it hasn't happened yet, so... But, but I mean, clearly this is not a religious program. Vipassana is not a religion. In some of the um, different versions, there are many different versions, and Buddhism is located in many different parts of the world, and it's very, very old. Um, but it's, it's not a religion per se, and it becomes a religion in certain ways and with, you know, worshipping uh, various figures, including B- Buddha in certain cultures, but basically at the heart of it and Vipassana, the teachings of the Buddha and the practice of Vipassana really reflects that. This is really Mm -hmm. about finding yourself Mm -hmm. and becoming the best person that you can be and addressing addiction and craving and aversion through awareness and Mm self-observation. It's a very deep personal practice and it does bring about deep personal change so so what do you think um these inmates got from the silent the silent meditation i know um there's a lot in your book about the philosophy of of impermanence and um why there were so many of the prisoners even though they live behind locked doors they talk about the meditation liberating them you know, what, what does, how does the silent meditation, how does Vipassana do that? I think we're all, we all can benefit from, from liberation and, and personal freedom. And that, that's not something that you discover one day. I mean, it's, it's a lifelong practice to really um, search inside yourself and observe yourself uh, and not cringe and run from whatever comes up for you. Uh, the experiences that you discover when you're doing this deep inner search. The prisoners, uh, the Dhamma brothers, as they came to call themselves, really have much more to fear than we do because, first of all, they're in a very unsafe place and there's a tremendous amount of suffering among prisoners. They also have committed crimes, often, not always. Prisoners haven't always done uh, done crimes, and they can be wrongfully accused, or maybe they're drug addicts, which we, large majority of prisoners are uh, drug addicts. Um, uh, but they, they've often led turbulent, traumatic lives. They're trauma survivors. They're untreated trauma survivors. And, and then, as I say, they're in an environment where you really have to watch your back, not look inside yourself. And so there's always that sort of dichotomy that we send prisoners there to get corrected, and yet we put them in an environment within which they cannot find themselves because they just don't feel like it. You know, they're scared, they're angry, they don't know how to, to handle their emotions, they don't have the skills and the tools, and they certainly don't have the place. I got, I got so, the impression watching the movie that um, every day was uh, a, an effort to survive, to be on your toes, to, I think as one of the social workers there said, this this place is a breeding ground for violence. Yeah. 
Uh, and isn't that ironic mm-hmm. that that's the place that we send people that society believes need to at least temporarily, and of course 97 to 98% of prisoners do return to society, but society has deemed them to need to be put in a special place and forever or, or for some kind of correcting. And then we lock them up, and they're so ready to change because one of the things I've discovered over the years of working with prisoners myself and also doing the whole Dahmer Brothers um, story is that prisons are a place that are that is conducive to deep com- contemplative practice. And very interesting. It, yeah. it's, it's so interesting yeah, because interesting. it's the whole yin and the yang of this story, I think. Mm-hmm. In a way, what I just said was they can't um, become self-reflective because they're scared to where they don't have the skills and it's a dangerous environment. But yet the other side of the coin is because of the level of suffering, you know, if you go to Club Med um, or to a, on a Caribbean, uh, you know, you know, you go to say in a resort in the Caribbean, you're not going to be very self-reflective. Most likely you're going to be out playing in the sun. So you take the polar opposite. You have somebody who can't go out in the sunshine, can't see nature, is looking at metal bars, and they are have the great capacity because, you know, not just because they have the time, it's much deeper than that. They have the fortitude because, you know, when you're in prison, you either check out or you check in, and people that check out, they, you know, they're going around and, you know, making alcoholic drinks out of fruit, or they're stabbing people, or they're watching cartoons, which is probably the most typical thing, is they're sitting around and watching television because what else do we expect them to do? or they're really, really going deep, and they find some way to go deep within themselves. And Vipassana was just sort of the perfect solution for their wish to go deep, just landing right on their doorstep. Amazing. And and I, I was just amazed at the irony of so many of them saying after they took the Vipassana course that even though they were the ones behind bars and some of them for life without parole, that they were free, that they were liberated in a way that most of us who don't live behind physical bars are not liberated. Yeah. So they, they in effect, become really wonderful teachers for all of us because they really have been able to take that journey, and we often have not. Um, Just quickly, the story of uh, a man named Omar Rahman, who I came to have so much respect for, and he died um, several years ago of liver failure, which is very common among prisoners. They get um, hepatitis C, and they get hardening of their livers, and, um, you know, it's very infectious. It's not infectious um, so much outside of prison, but they live in such crowded conditions. And uh, so anyway, Omar unfortunately died several years ago, but he was a uh, Sunni Muslim leader in the prison and he was uh, always meeting with the the muslim community and um they would you know they would talk about the quran and uh, do their daily salats and have all kinds of discussions about the meaning of life and he was very dedicated um you know to his faith and yet when vipassana came along he decided not to take the take the course because he was afraid that it would uh, you know remove him from his faith, and he was frightened by that. But he carried this deep stigma within himself. He was a nonviolent offender 
who had done some bank robberies, which you could say that that's violent, but he'd never hurt anybody along the way, and he'd become mm-hmm. addicted to uh, drugs when he was uh, in college. But he carried this sense of inferiority, low self-esteem um, from his childhood. And whenever I talked to him, which was over many, many visits that I had with him, he would talk about what he called the last kiss. And when he was a little boy, his parents um, divorced, and he lived with his mother, and she was pretty rough and hard on him. He was the only son, and she was tough on him, and she had kissed him the very last time when he was a very small boy. I think he was about four or five years old. Held him in his arms and kissed him, and after that, he she would be, you know, it was many beatings and sent to his room, and he never felt very good about himself. Later became drug addicted and always had this sense of inferiority especially around older women ends up at Donaldson with life without parole and is working because he was such a brilliant man he was um, went to school with Condoleezza Rice in Tuscaloosa and um, they were the top students always in the school (laughs) he was just a brilliant guy Um, so he was working with the librarian and the librarian was a very as often people are inside prisons you know, not the prisoners, the prisoners, but also the staff, very, very damaged person and very angry. And she took it out on Omar and he was an easy target because he was always trying to enable her. He was kind of an enabler for her of whatever she put on him. He accepted it and carried it, carried the burden. And after Vipassana, he went during Vipassana, he went back to the last kiss. He was there. He, he felt it. He saw it. He was in the moment, and he'd never been able to really go back to that time, and it gave him a deep understanding of himself as a little boy and how he carried that forward. And after the course was over, he didn't feel that way anymore about himself. He felt much stronger, and when he went back to work with the librarian, it wasn't that he was... He didn't seem to change that much outwardly, but inwardly, he wasn't taking on the burden of her moods, and he was actually um, much more effective with her because he was so mindful of her needs. And they just developed a different relationship after that. So I think that's a very good example of, you know, even even though he never got out, um, he did find a way to live within himself and within those walls, a way that allowed him to find greater mm-hmm. peace and happiness inside. He also went back to the... Sunni Muslim community and, and um, had a greater appreciation of the daily salats and the meaning of the Quran. That that whole um, idea of who who you are before this ten day experience and how you change and then how you go back into the prison population. Um, well, it kind of reminded me of I think it was Ed who had been. Uh, one the gang leader in mm-hmm. in the prison and there there are so many poignant things in in the book and also in the film about him and and seeing his uh his the miraculous way he talks about how he's going to to deal with can can you talk about that a little bit i mean what what did what were some of the challenges that they faced afterwards Going well, back I think into in, the population. In the, culture, the culture of manhood, I call it, uh, in prison, uh, you you need to be able to fight 
in order to stay safe. And I think sometimes they go too far with that in the sense that prisoners are so afraid of showing uh, weakness uh, or softness or, or gentleness because they're so afraid that it's going to, you know, somebody's going to take advantage of them, uh, rape them, steal from them, humiliate them, you know, all kinds of ways that you can really sink on the pecking order inside prison. And so Big Ed, as he called himself, was a major gangbanger, and um, he was ready, in, you know, in, in at a moment's notice to go into battle. And he built a very strong, impregnable reputation on his his outer strength. But he was a wonderful man inside, and he, but he, he, you know, he had never been in touch with any those inner qualities. Uh, he couldn't be, and he never, even in his childhood, I don't think, he had early begun to pride himself on, on his outer strength and his ability to lead men into battle. And that all really changed during his Vipassana course. And one of the things that he met with, like Omar's last kiss, um, Big Ed dealt with the death of his daughter. She died on a, in a playground accident, Hurt, hit her head, and died in a hospital and he had never allowed himself to realize that she had actually died, and he kept alive the uh, misinformation that she was still alive and that he had actually seen her in her coffin at the funeral, but that she had blinked her eyes and that she was still alive. And, you know, you could say that that's lovely that he could believe that, but actually the truth sets us free, and I never knew what that meant until I followed this story with the Dumber Brothers that... If you're bound up in things that are not true and you take so much energy to keep them down, suppress them down under the surface, that takes a lot of energy. And I think it made Ed more triggered and scattered and um, jagged, you know, in his interactions with others so that he wasn't really safe himself because he had all these obligations to, to fight people. Mm-hmm. And after he um, went through the course, somewhere during the course, he realized in the middle of the night, in a dream, his daughter came to him and told him that, you know, explained to him what had happened to her, and he heard it. And the next morning, he got up and told everybody that he realized his daughter had died, and he ran up to the meditation teachers and said, my daughter died, and they knew exactly what to say to him. You know, that's good, Ed. You, you know, you're, you're discovering the truth of what happened, and that's that's a good thing. That's healthy. Mm -hmm. And so then he wasn't scared to really let it sink in and sit with it. And that was somewhere in the middle of the Vipassana course, and he really sat with that as well as as a lot of other things um, and came out at the end of the course with a realization that he didn't want to do those things anymore and he didn't need to do those things anymore and that he could drop out of gang life. And I think he suffered from that a bit. At times he was beaten up and ridiculed by people. Um, They called him names. But he was able to, and and a few times he did get into fights, you know, he had to get on that pathway. But eventually he did, and he became a leader within the prison. And the prison that he was transferred to, St. Clair Prison, a lower level security, and and he's now been released. Um, But I think he came to realize that he didn't have to fight anymore. I just want to remind all our listeners that 
that this is Healthy Options. And today uh, we're talking with Jenny Phillips about her much acclaimed documentary film, The Dama Brothers, and her also her book called Letters from the Dama Brothers. Um, this is WERU, and we are 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor, streaming online also, and also at WERU.org. Um, this is not a call-in show, but if you have questions, please email your questions to us at info at weru.org. Um, you know, I want to go back a little bit to the actual physical setting of this 10 days. Um, they're, they're, these prisoners are meditating for 10 hours a day. And what is, what is this? And, and they're in this gymnasium 24-7. So, so what, what is a, what, what, what is this 10 days like for them? Well, first of all, they moved in you, and you see this in the film, they moved in, uh, to the, it's called the West gym and it's actually a battlefield for gangs and traditionally. And so it got set up as a, uh, ashram, uh, a meditation center. And, uh, it was set up as a place within which the men could, uh, have their meals. There was one section of the room that had uh, tables and chairs and um, cooking pots and ser- you know, a serving table and things like that. And then there was a place in the middle where their prison mattresses were all lined up in a row. Uh, so there's a curtain between those two areas. And then there's a curtain between the sleeping area and the sitting area. And that's where they spent 10 hours a day meditating. So when they moved in, they were full of apprehension. They were afraid of the teachers. The teachers were afraid of them. They thought the teachers must be weird and uh, crazy that they wanted to come in and uh, live with prisoners. And maybe they had some, they felt the teachers maybe had some plans for them that they were going to hurt them. And, um, of course, the teachers were afraid of the prisoners, too. Somebody had told them that they, they seem nice, but then they can really hurt you. So everybody was afraid of everybody else. And as time went by, as hours went by and the course began, everybody began to uh, relax and have a tremendous sense of community. Rival Prisoners from rival gangs began to uh, appreciate each other as human beings. The security guards began to appreciate the hard work that the prisoners were doing and to honor and respect them for that. So. The guards really had a different relationship. Their job wasn't there to to guard or punish, but to support and facilitate this uh, practice. That the yeah, brothers some were. of that was really quite touching in the film. I think there was that one um, guard. What was it Big Big E? Was Eldritch? I think. Yeah. And and there was th- this wonderful um, moment when all of the men are going to go outside, I guess, just for a minute to the fresh air or something outside. And he's very protective of them. He, he's very, just very, very protective. And I thought the relationship, relationships that developed between the teachers and the prisoners and the guards were really incredible to, wa- to watch that happen. Yeah, you can really feel it. Um, outside the the door, the door had a sign on it that said meditation in progress. So once you go through that door, you're going into another world. And it's really a, a world based on, on community. 
and mindfulness. It's really a very different universe from that of the prison. And so everybody changed when they walked through that door. Everybody saw new possibilities and, and new hopes. Mm-hmm. And you can really feel that, I think, in the film. You certainly feel it when you see Big E, Mitch Etheridge, yes. the guard, who looks to me like an African-American Buddha. I mean, he's just yeah. got that, yes, he does. that same build and that same mm-hmm. head. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was a gentleman anyway. There were other guards that mm-hmm. weren't quite as gentle that were also so impressed. And everybody in the mm-hmm. prison, mm-hmm. although they pronounced the word Vipassana in many, many different ways. I noticed that. <laughs> but they all knew what it was. Yeah. They all knew that it was something good that was coming inside. And because of the prison's normal violence, and I told you, it's, well, it's called the house of pain among the prisoners, mm-hmm. that everybody struggled with the negativity of this environment. Mm-hmm. But yet when they saw Vipassana come in, they were ready for good change. And I think, I have to say, right right from the top to the bottom, everybody was ready to see something good happen and hoping that something good mm-hmm. could come out of it. Well, and I think the film uh, expresses the caring of the teachers. I mean, they are actually physically helping to take care of these men. And then when they have these moments when they want to just run off the mat, head for the door... Um, the teachers seem so amazing the way they're able to connect with these guys and say, you know, come back, you, you can do this. Come back to the mat again. Yeah, they would find uh, uh, prisoners uh, uh, cowering underneath their sheets and shaking and crying, and they would point out to them that they need to come back to the mat, and this is the work that they're doing, and that this is good work. This is exactly what they need to do. Not back off, but, but look in. And with that kind of encouragement, they felt the love coming from the teachers. Mm-hmm. And within that kind of nurturing environment, and with without that kind of nurturing environment, you could not bring a program like this inside of a prison. Mm-hmm. Nobody would do it. Nobody would. Nobody would sit and open up their feelings and and cry and face terrible truths without being in a loving environment. So I I'm really curious about. This this part part of Vipassana. There there are so many treatment programs out there uh, for addiction and depression and post traumatic stress, and I think they all have different merits to them. But the thing that so impressed me about Vipassana is it seemed like it it addressed everything for everybody who was willing to make the commitment to really look at themselves. And how how is it that Vipassana is able to take something, some some terrible fear, let's say, or something that someone's so terribly ashamed of that is such a huge thing in their life and it, and it seems as though the Vipassana makes it a pebble in your hand instead. You know, what what, what is that? How does that work? Well, the heart and soul of Buddhism is uh, there are three types of learning in in Buddhism. Uh, There's book learning, um, there's learning from teachers, and both of those are very good ways to learn. Uh, But the third one, which is Buddhism, is experiential. And prisoners like to say the only way out is in, and I I love that because it's Mm. so deep. The only way that they can escape and, you know, they could try to get over the, the barbed wire fence, but that's not really going to help them escape. And the only way they can really escape 
is to go inside themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a, um, yesterday I went to a fundraiser for a local Boston-based ballet company. And it's a wonderful ballet company because the, the dancers are often on scholarship and they often come from a very troubled past and uh, past. And this young ballerina got up uh, to speak and she told her story of growing up in a household where there was tremendous violence and drugs. And she spent many years in halfway houses. Um, and the only thing that liberated her was dance. And not to compare dance completely to Vipassana, mm-hmm. but again, it's that experiential mm-hmm. wisdom. She got inside of her body and her soul because... If you want to get into your soul, you go through the body, I think. And that kind of deep experiential awareness on the dance floor helped her find freedom. It was just so clear when she was speaking. I was thinking, oh, I want to mention this tomorrow (laughs) on the radio. (laughs) Well, I think so many times in our culture, we want to be able to explain everything through words. And words are, are often not the way we experience things best. I, 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 see what you're saying about through your body and, and through the Vipassana, it's, it's not about being academic and it's not about, it's not about the words. It's, it's really well, about something like much deeper than now, that. What I would like to do now, if it's okay with you, is I have a, an audio clip. Yes. Which is about three and a half minutes. Yes. But, and, and, and if, if people can't really understand what this man is saying, I apologize for it. I just want to, but it'll, it'll we'll still give you the sense of, his story. Mm-hmm. This is a man named Milton, and he's a long, young African-American who has either life or life without parole. I think he may have life without parole, and he's a he's a drug addict. Uh, you know, arrested probably three times for drug possession. Um, but anyway, what he's talking about in this, it's so powerful because uh, there's such wisdom in what he's saying. He's saying that people always taught him to deal with his addiction through suppression. And this is what he found in Vipassana, is not suppression, but awareness. And, and he talks about sitting with craving and how craving changes from the moment it hits you as you're doing a sitting practice, um, as you sit with the craving, how it changes. And then he talks about what you mentioned before, which was impermanence, which he calls anicca, which is the, um, the Pali word for it. So let me just play this um, this audio clip and yes. we can talk about it afterwards. That would be great. Okay. Is there any connection, do you think, between the skills that you've learned in Vipassana and helping you with addiction, do you think? I think, uh, yeah, it's a big connection because it gives me a, a, a better way of dealing with things where the suppression part, that was something else that stood out. When we was talking about uh, Gwen was talking about craving, addiction, hatred, avoidance, avoidance. And he was talking about how that we crave those things which cause addiction. The craving caused the addiction. And I always knew, you know, through classes and teaching different classes, that it wasn't about the symptoms. You know, the actual things we do are just symptoms of a deeper problem. And can you connect that whole theory of your addiction to Vipassana and how it, how it helped that? Well, how it helped it, the connection would be in, in, in the craving, the addiction part of it, the craving, addiction. And, and how, I, how I use Vipassana now is to deal with it when it comes up. The next thing, Kara will come up. It's a word you use called Enichi. 
just mean it's just momentarily. It will pass. And and as I notice that these cravings come up or these thoughts come up, don't have to entertain them. I don't even have to try to suppress them anymore. All I have to do is just ride it out, so to speak. And what I mean by that is just observe it. When it come up and say, hey, while I really would, it, it feels like I really would like to do this. But I'm just going to wait and see. And after a while, they really want to do it, it gets less up. It wouldn't be all right. It, it really wouldn't matter. But I don't think I would. And it leaves. You know, it leaves. Did you ever learn to handle addiction that way before, or was it new as possible? The way I had learned to handle it was that uh, more or less to suppress. And that's different from what you're saying. That's, that's totally different. Because when you suppress it, you're, you're like white nothing. You say, hey, go away, go away, go away, go away. You know, go away, go away. Let me find something to do to occupy my mind. And you're not really dealing with it. With a possum, you're dealing with it. You're seeing it when it comes up. You're, it's kind of like cold turkey. You're dealing with it. When it comes up, you're saying, you're looking at dead in the eyes. Say, okay, I see you. I acknowledge you. But I'm not going to entertain you. And as time goes, it changes. You see it change. That same thing that you desire be the same thing you turn to loathe and vice versa. You know? And that's one thing about the Vipassana. When we go through the Vipassana portion of it, on the fourth day, you start dealing with sensations. Sometimes you might have a pleasant sensation. And that's what that addiction, that craving comes in. We want to feel good. Oh, man, I need to keep that. That's a good sensation. And the next thing you know, it's another sensation coming. Something is throbbing or aching, like, oh, go away, go away, go away, go away. You don't want that. So it's learning how to deal with it. It's learning how to just observe it. Hey, just like this nice sensation is taking place, I'm going to enjoy it for this moment. Because in a minute, it may leave. And if it leaves or if it stays, I'm still going to be all right. When that unpleasant moment come up, I'm not going to wish it away. I'm just going to observe it. I hope you could hear mm-hmm. that okay. That that was very good. I, especially his last line, I'm not, I'm not going to wish it away. I'm going yeah, to observe yeah. it, knowing that it's impermanent. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I mm-hmm. say that um, yeah. these men, and these men are, are, they're not unusual any more than you and I are. I mean, there you, you'll find uh, people like this throughout the prison system that have this capacity for, if given a chance, to really learn. And when they learn, because of the nature of their suffering and the environment that they have to live their lives in, they become such articulate teachers of it. I mean, I think that man's words are more powerful than most lecturers that I've heard talking about substance yes. abuse. Yes, yes, yes. Well, so... Um they went through this 10-day intensive meditation period. Then they go back into the regular prison population. Um, what about maintaining a practice? I mean, it's one thing to go through 10 days of an incredible experience, but if you don't maintain a practice, does that just become a great memory that you had of something that happened for 10 days? Well, it sure does. If you don't maintain a practice, it's just a good memory. You might even not even have a memory. You might just drop it. Um, first of all, I wish that the Vipassana organization 
could maintain it even more strongly than they do. Because I think when you're a prisoner, to do something like this, you need a lot of support, ongoing support. However, the really wonderful news is the program is still there. Update Next us. week, yes. there'll be another 10-day program. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's four 10-day programs a year. There are several three-day sort of refresher courses for those who have taken mm-hmm. the program already mm-hmm. uh, a year. Um, and over, I think, probably close to half, somewhere between a third and a half of the prisoners at Donaldson have now taken Vipassana. So there is sort of a, a slowly mm-hmm. uh, rising culture of mindfulness in the prison. Very interesting. Now, what about in other places in the United States? I mean, th- this has been so successful at Donaldson, but why aren't we hearing about it more in other places? Well, first of all, I think prisons are such shutdown places and they're so rigid and hidebound that it's very hard for a prison to do something this unusual. And that's why I say, well, yeah, there was resistance in the Alabama countryside, but they did do it. You know, mm-hmm. they did it. Um, uh, I, I I wish that there were more steps being taken right now mm-hmm. to work with correctional systems in, in other parts of the country. I mean, I hear that it's coming. I hear that the women's prison in, in Alabama, that there's mm-hmm. hopes and plans to bring it to this very overcrowded, um, very uh, very disturbing environment at Tutwiler Prison. Um, I did see something. Uh, some kind of a class action suit right now for... Uh, abuse of the women by the guards and it's mm. it's a very overcrowded uh, mm. hopeless environment mm. i never went inside tutwiler but i've heard the um dr ron cavanaugh the director of treatment for the alabama department of corrections is mm. talking about bringing vipassana to tutwiler things move very slowly mm-hmm. so uh, I, I, re- I just i, I really recently. hope what'd you say go, go ahead oh, well i did recently see a youtube with um uh Karen Betty from India, mm-hmm. and she was at Emory in Georgia mm-hmm. talking to uh, corrections folks in Georgia. Oh, and really? I think they had somebody there from Donaldson at, talking about how they could implement it there in Georgia. Was that several years ago or was that more recent? Well, I just saw this YouTube probably within the last two months. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and I, I thought it was so wonderful. For our listeners, um, Karen Betty is the... Um, woman from India who was the uh, warden. She's just a tiny little bit of an Indian woman who is just incredible. (laughs) She was the warden of a 10,000 male inmate prison in India. And she did a Vipassana course, I think, back in the early 90s and and did that documentary film, uh, Doing Time, Doing Vipassana. That's right. She's the warden Mm -hmm. in the film. And you see the program being brought into this prison. And I think it's still, from what I've heard, it's still uh, continuing there mm-hmm. um, after many, many years. So that's great. And I didn't realize she'd been to Emory. Emory would be a great place from which right. to spring support for uh, corrections, bringing a Vipassana um, program. Well, she's such a no-nonsense woman. Uh, yeah. they, they asked about, well, this strange word, Vipassana, how do we get around it? She said, well, just... Don't use it. Call it mindfulness or consciousness raising yeah, based yeah. on the technique of Vipassana. Just don't put Vipassana in the headlines. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, she's, uh, she's quite a go-getter. So those films, uh, Doing Time, yeah. Doing Vipassana, The Dhamma Brothers, there's a third film, Changing from Inside, which is about uh, the uh, 
County Jail, minimum security uh, lockup setting in Seattle that I mentioned that had a program for for ten years. Um, uh, those those films actually, and that's why I decided to make a film. They become change agents. Uh, I think film can often be film and also photographs often um, can change the world. So I, you know, they're yes. just they're they're out there and people are seeing them. I, I'm just amazed at all the different places that the Dahmer brothers have been around the world, and I think it's a great change agent. It makes people really think beyond the normal barriers of our of our minds. Well, I know I I teach a class in resiliency at um, a reentry center here in Maine, and I use your film, The Dahmer Brothers, and your book. Letters from the Dama Brothers in my class on resiliency. And the guys just love that movie. Um, one particular uh, inmate has told me and several other guys that he was so moved by the part of the movie where I think it's uh, Grady does the Vipassana course and discovers later on that his daughter has been murdered. And is able to forgive the person that murdered his daughter. Yeah, yeah. And his inmate at the re-entry center was so impressed by that. He just couldn't, he just kept saying that in class and to other people over and over again. I can't believe that he could actually forgive the person that murdered his daughter. And and we do have, at re-entry now, we have a, a class in mindfulness. So we are here in Maine, um, paying close attention. I would love to see a Vipassana program come to Corrections in Maine. Well, let's, let's hope and dream and maybe take some steps. I think that, that we could make that happen. And in other, other places as well, what are some of the next steps for you? What are some of the projects that you're working on now? Well, we do have, um, in that clip that, that you listened to, is part of what I'm preparing right now, which is an ebook for the iPad, which is going to come out, I think, sometime this summer. Um, so I've been working on that, and it's it is letters from the Donna Brothers, but it has included in it a lot of film footage and uh, interviews that I did with the Donna Brothers. So that's going to be a rich and wonderful kind of interactive, and it's going to look wonderful too, visually. You know, more than the book. The book doesn't. The photographs don't really jump up off the page in the in the paper book, but I think this is going to be a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing which is really extraordinary is um, I partnered with Journey, a group called Journeys in Film, and they bring great films into the classroom, and those films become part of a comprehensive um, course. Uh, it could be a semester-long program um, on a particular part of the world or a particular uh, issue. Um, and so the Dahmer Brothers is right now being, we, we wrote a curriculum um, and includes everything from Buddhism and mindfulness to uh, a lesson plan on the criminal justice system. And it's got a strong experiential component as well. And that curriculum is being um, used right now uh, as a sort of a part of an evaluation to see how it works in the classroom in 50 colleges and universities and lockup settings around the United States. So this is also for, you know, high school and college as well as for prison education. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. And oh, I look forward the, to that. Yeah. At the end of um, the 
period of time that the teachers have it, which I think I think it will be early June, they will do an evaluation form that we have, and they'll send us their feedback on how it worked and what some of the problems were and some of their suggestions for changes. And we will implement those in a way that um, will finalize the curriculum, and then it will be available for download online mm-hmm. on my website and on Journeys in Film Film's now, website as well. And um, there will be easy ways that teachers can um, get access to the film. They can they can buy it for twenty five dollars, and I know often that's that's a lot, but they can also stream it into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, how have you found um, the climate in corrections uh, regarding what you're doing and the directions you're going? And, and do you think there? I, I I know I I noticed I think in one of the extras on the film that um, in Alabama they sent several correction officers to the Vipassana Center in Massachusetts so that they could actually take the course. Yes. Yeah. Is that one of the ways to uh, maybe help corrections departments understand what this is about? Or what? Well, those are the rules of the Vipassana organization, um, that if a prison were interested, that they needed to actually have the staff understand it. Again, this uh-huh. has to do with what I was mentioning before, experientially. Not, you know, sit down and read a book about it, but uh, really understand it deeply within themselves. So yes, we had um, six or seven, I forget the exact number, people come up from Alabama before the first course that we had at Donaldson, including Dr. Kavanaugh and including me. Mm -hmm. Um, And we went and we did a 10-day sitting, and it was my first Mm -hmm. 10-day sitting as well. Mm -hmm. And we all did it together in Shelburne Mm -hmm. Falls. Well, I'm signed up for October. (laughs) Yes, that's great. So, so I I mean, I, I really want to experience it myself. I just want to say to listeners that this is Healthy Options, and this morning we've had the privilege of talking to Jenny Phillips about her um, award-winning film documentary, The Dhamma Brothers, and her book, Letters from the Dhamma Brothers. And um, if you'd like to give some of your contact information, how people, your website, and how people could get in touch with you, can you do that yes, for if us? if you go to the website, which is Dhamma Brothers, D-H-A-M-M-A Brothers dot com, you will see, first of all, on the main page of, of the website, you can join our Facebook uh, page, which is a wonderful way to stay up on current stories in criminal justice uh, or education related to uh, criminal justice, um, mindfulness programs, and also just the Dhamma Brothers stories uh, themselves. Um, and also, you can go to the contact page and you can reach me my email address, which is just Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, at DhammaBrothers.com. I'd love to hear from people. Um, and you, you can see video clips. You can read all the backstories. Uh, as well as one thing I just quickly mentioned is the letters from the Dhamma Brothers. I chose some of the, selected some of the one, the strongest ones and uh, had actors trained to read the letters. And so you can actually read them on the website you can listen to them you know i i was particularly moved by um their affection uh for you and the other teachers especially for you in their in their letters i mean how how did that make you feel personally and professionally well i always try not to get my ego in the way here i i don't want to get some kind of a complex about well, i don't mean so much ego leader. i but, i just um, meant this this 
this really loving, wonderful relationship that seems well, I, to have I, developed. You know, it's a, it's. I feel, I felt it. I feel it towards them as well. I still hear from mm-hmm. many of the Dhamma brothers, and um, I, I feel a, I, I feel a very strong uh, connection to them and to the courage that they showed as they trusted enough to go on this journey within themselves and as they continue in their various ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel I feel the same way. I feel the same love for them. And and is there something inspirational that everyone can learn from from these inmates? I mean, I, these are what can we all for, take from this? These are lessons for life. I think the reason the stories are so strong is they're so authentic. Nobody is scripted. Nobody's chosen. Everybody just showed up, um, <laughs> and it's just yes. it's natural and mm-hmm. and uh, authentic, and and you can feel it. Very authentic. You really kind of step inside their shoes, which was my greatest hope. Mm -hmm. We've been speaking with Jenny Phillips about her documentary, The Dhamma Brothers. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Healthy Options. And please join us again. Thanks for listening.